This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and tonight I kind of lucked out and finally schedules aligned, and I got Colin Draker of Colorado Springs, Colorado on. He has a YouTube channel now that is gaining much more and more popularity, aptly named Colin Draker, D-R-A-K-E-R, and I highly recommend you check it out. He had a couple of videos, really, that seemed to hit one right, right after the other. One was why he hated being a mechanic, and then it was shortly followed up with, I quit. And I would say it kind of went viral, but before we get rolling too quickly, let's just take a minute here to thank our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Napa Auto Tech offers three-hour virtual technical classes that can be accessed from the comfort of your home. To find out what courses are available, go to NapaAutotech.com and click on the Napa Auto Tech class calendar link. Welcome to the podcast, Colin, and glad we could finally get this done. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. For those that haven't seen your channel yet, how would you describe it right now? I don't know. It's kind of starting up, so I'm just kind of trying everything. Like, Anything automotive related, DIY stuff that has to do with the automotive industry in general. I want to do some more automotive like tech tips or diagnostic videos. I just haven't really found the time or the niche to get into it yet. So I'm just trying every field on YouTube, see what sticks, see what doesn't. So The ones that really hit seem to be the ones about really just being an auto mechanic nowadays. And I, don't know, I guess I'd let you describe it before I try to. One day I was just pissed off and was frustrated with a, another shop that I started a couple of months prior that gave me a bunch of false promises. And it just seems like every shop I go to has false promises, lack of work, constantly asking for free work or favors. And I was, I don't know what came over my head to make the video, but I just decided that I was going to speak up. And there's not a lot of techs out there that complain about being in the industry, or at least the videos I've seen, one that you've sent me is kids that are really young that have only been doing it a few months and hits them real hard and then they just kind of quit and leave. But, you know, I've been doing this ever since I was 18 and almost 31 now. So 13 years and I've been a shop foreman, a tech, a loop tech, a shop helper. Like I've done everything in the back of an automotive shop. And just from that experience and still not being happy with the industry is... I don't know. I just thought that people needed to hear it. so Or at least get it off your chest. And then it turned out they wanted to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty crazy. All the people that have commented on it or just been very related to it. It's a lot of people that are getting out of the trade or want to get out of the trade. They all comment on it saying, been there, done that, or that's where I am now. I don't want to work on cars anymore. So it's definitely kind of eye-opening to see how many people are not super excited with the trade anymore. So Yeah, we got a bit of a nasty habit of that. Especially historically, I think. I don't know. It seems like the last few years are getting better, but I also think at least where I live and a lot of the people I interact with normally got a bubble around myself. I don't know that many flat rate techs and it sounds like that's what you worked primarily. Yeah. So a lot of people have commented saying they're on hourly salary and granted there are those shops around here, but they're very far few in between. Most of the shops where I am are all flat rate, but it's just kind of the industry standard, at least for Colorado. I don't really know too many independent shops around here that are well off enough or successful enough or have the work stability in order to even put their techs on a salary or hourly position type of pay structure. So that's all I've known. I've been at one shop that paid salary, but I was a foreman and I, I had five people's responsibilities in my hands. So that kind of dictates being on salary because you can't produce at that moment in time when you're having to 
do other stuff around the shop. So yeah, I mean, I've been flat rate my entire career and that's my biggest struggle or biggest headache with the trade is just flat rate pay system. There's a lot of holes. It's easy to manipulate. And it's just, it causes a lot of stress in the shop, I think. A lot of techs aren't happy. They're always mad. I'm sure you're aware you're a technician. A lot of technicians are just known for being complainers, being whiners, complaining over the stupidest, littlest things. And it's, I contribute a lot of that to flat rate pay because most of the stuff they complain about is not in their job title or something they're not getting paid for. And it just stacks up over time. And a lot of techs just hold it in because we're all men. We don't want to express our feelings. So it's just kind of how it is. Well, our, I think our feelings are our opinions. And so we share our opinions and that's the way we share our feelings is we form opinions and then share them. And like what you're talking about to me, again, I'm not ultra familiar with flat rate. I've never worked it. I've never been in a shop that had it. I don't know that many shops that do have it. But it to me, it seems like what you've been working under and what many people text listening live and work under is it's not a system put in place designed to try to get as much money in their pockets as possible. It's almost like a scheme by management, but be it an owner or whoever's running the show, to protect themselves from as much risk as possible at the expense of putting money in employees' hands. And that, to me, that's where it breaks it. Or they went to a class and some instructor put up a really good argument as to why to run flat rate, the meritocracy of it, the you can set your labor gross profit and it's fixed. So if you have a desired gross profit of whatever number, 70%, boom, that's what it's going to be. It doesn't necessarily translate into actual dollars, but that's the sales pitch and it's easy. And here's the carrot. You want to make more money? Work harder, work faster. So it's almost like a cop out and they don't see, like management doesn't see it as a system an entire system, like a machine, like they would treat a car. So they don't understand that for this to work, there has to be systems in place that maximize everything, that that minimizes your downtime, maxes the amount of time that you can bill out so that you can hit whatever numbers that are, whatever's deemed reasonable without stressing out about it. And then I agree, the stress of, you're essentially as an employee taking on this risk. If the shop cannot get cars in the shop, you're suffering. Now, granted, I know some people on hourly or salary, if they can't get cars in, they're sending you home. But you're not necessarily required to be there where it sounds like flat rate. A lot of shops is if you're not here, you're out of a job, even if we can't get cars in the door. So you have pros and cons on both sides, right? But if you don't have the work, it's nice to know that you most likely will be bringing home the same paycheck. I don't mind flat rate and I don't hate it. It does have its downsides, especially on the dealership side. I mean, it's nice that if you bust your butt and you work hard and you flag a lot of hours, you're quick and efficient and everything goes as planned. Like you always come home with a bigger check than what you worked. But but it's a feast or famine type of deal where one week you could flag 70 hours, the next you can flag 20. And it's nothing that's in your control. It doesn't matter how hard you work. That week that you flagged 20 hours, you could have worked all 40 and that 20 hours could have been from one job that was a complete rust bucket and everything went wrong. And now you're getting screwed the shop doesn't take on that burden besides loss of productivity. But at the end of the day, like the tech is the one that is taking the loss. I feel like it just, it creates a bad just culture in general in the automotive industry and the shop. I'm not going to go to bat for flat rate. I'm just not, but it just sounds like 
complete and utter mismanagement. It is so not seeing big picture. If you have a flat rate system in place, then it's your job as a manager, your systems that probably in this case, the service advisor, if this job is going sideways, it has, why is it going sideways? Is it like you're saying it's a rust bucket? Well, why is that your problem? Why is that the shop's problem? Why isn't it bring the service advisor back? Say, look at this. All this stuff is rusty. We couldn't tell this in the initial visual inspection. We couldn't see this until we started taking stuff off. And then the service advisor's like, how much more time do you think it's going to need? A few hours. It's like, I'll go see what I can do. And then they come back and say, I got you an extra three, four hours. Will that be good? Oh, dude, that'll be great. And now you're not taking it in the rear. The shop isn't really taking it in the rear. But that's like you're saying, that's like, that's not what's happening. It's leveraging the system against you, which I mean, leveraging stuff against your employees that they're the ones that make the place go. It's mind boggling. It's so mind boggling. And that's what we hear over and over again. I think flat rate systems make it easier for management to do that. It doesn't seem to matter if they're hourly or whatever. If ownership or management is not on board or blind, that they're punishing their employees and driving them away. And like you, they're not quitting to go to another shop. They're just done. I'm out. I'm going to go do something completely different. Well, I have quit and gone to another shop like probably eight or nine times within the past three years. And that's just, that's where it's like, do I go to another shop and potentially just reach the same conclusion? Or do I try to chase a different career, different pay structure, whatever the case may be? They complain about the tech shortage, right? But at least from my experience, and it sounds like flat rate's not a very common thing where you are, but from my experience, when I was at Toyota, you would get all these kids that go to UTI or YO Tech or community college for training. They get shoved into the quick loop bay for a year, two years. Typically, they're hourly in the quick loop bay. But when they want to move up, you have to go on to flat rate. And you have to be thrown into the main line. Typically, you would be thrown under a foreman. So they would kind of teach you how to work on cars efficiently. But you're still under flat rate. And then the foreman that's teaching you is under flat rate. So now you have two people, buttonheads, trying to produce work. And then the foreman doesn't take time to teach the apprentice how to fix a car, how to diagnose a car, all of that. And then the apprentice doesn't want to learn the long way and the correct way to diagnose a car or to fix something correctly or to just clean the valve cover when you're doing a valve cover gasket because they want to make those hours as fast as possible. So then it creates, it's like a a rolling ball and it it creates bad work, incorrectly done work, skip steps, mad customers, bad reputations for technicians. So I just, and that's what was going over my head the other day when I made that video is this is why all this stuff is happening. Sooner or later, it's got to be fixed. It sounds like it's been like this for a long time and it may never change. So, And you're the one that kind of came out in that system, a capable tech, whether it's what you learned growing up or just you as an individual. How many others go through that system and they don't make it to that next step? They never really make it on the line or they're there for a very short time. They're starving. They got, they're out or I guess back on the lube rack. And that's kind of stunning to me to hear, especially from the dealer network because I I agree with you like I think this is a massive problem with our profession is we're not like a lot of other skilled trades where they have kind of a map if you will for your career when you can go to school to be an electrician and then you're going to be serving as an apprentice and then you move up to journeyman and there's kind of a process and I think granted a lot of these skilled professions have an advantage over us in that their fields are relatively Uh, narrow, especially compared to auto repair. 
You know what I mean? Like if you're going to be an HVAC technician, you could be the one that diagnoses and fixes AC or furnaces or whatever, or you might be an installer. But outside of that, what is there? You know what I mean? And you could go into an electrician and you have what commercial, residential, you have 20, 240 for voltage. And then a lot of it's like building codes. It doesn't really extend outside of that where auto repair is like really nuanced and it's just mechanical, electrical, diagnostics, R&R. Some shops maybe still rebuild transmissions, stuff like that. To me, it's so such a wide swath of things we have to know and learn. And we have a really poor way of bringing people along. They go to a two-year college that's very basic, and then they got to come in and they should be spending a long time interning almost, paid internship to learn how to progress to that line tech. So it's sad to hear that the dealer doesn't even get it right. It's also a tad bit of a relief that the independent shops aren't just totally off base either. I pretty much got the job to be a automotive instructor at a college here. Pretty much just kind of turned away yesterday too, because all my friends or all the kids that I've dealt with at the dealership or whatever shop, they want to learn the trade and they are about to go into massive debt. These trade schools are charging 30, 40, 50 grand now to get an associates on basic 12 volt electrical and how an internal combustion engine works. Like that's really all they teach. And it's, I tell all the kids that I deal with or help or work with, find a shop, start from the bottom and just be eager and learn while you work, learn to get paid. And so, yeah, I was like, why would I want to teach at a college if I'm against it? I just, I don't, the trade is just so weird to me now. Everything just seems like it has holes from learning it to performing it. The certifications, like just they're pointless. An electrician, you have to go to school. You don't have to, but you start as an apprentice, right? And usually apprenticeship is five years. And then you can take a test to become a journeyman. And also like a lineman, you have to go through an apprenticeship. You have to be a groundsman. You have to work up to, like you have to work on steps and then you have to have certifications in order to be alignment. I got my ASC certifications within two years that I started working at a shop. That wasn't even two years of working on a car. And you're not supposed to do that. But, you know, my boss didn't care. I could pass the tests. So I did it. And that's just kind of the holes that are in this industry is it's easy to pass the test. It's easy to say you're a technician. And you don't really have to be that good to become a technician. And that builds a bad reputation. And then... I don't know. The whole trade is out of whack. Well, we're one of the very few skilled trades that don't have any sort of licensing. Some states have licensing programs, and I think some counties in certain states have some licensing mandates, if you will, or laws, I guess. It's voluntary. The profession itself at one time came together, you know, independent and dealers. They all came together, granted, a long time ago to try to keep the government out and keep them from, I'm guessing, a licensing program. And so then ASC is formed and it's the minimum standard or I should say probably better yet is a minimum threshold of knowledge to get that credential. And it's a catch-22 how you word that or say that, right? It could be diminishing it, but also not as many people pass as we think they do. The thing with ASC is it's voluntary. There's no teeth to it. So if the shop doesn't require it, or you walk in for an interview and you're like, hey, I'm ASC certified master. I got my L1. I got my L2. I got my L3. I got 
this, that, and the other. And they're, I don't care. The last guy that was here couldn't fix a sandwich. Now what? Now you've spent time and money to get them and they do nothing for you. But I, I stick up for ASC a little bit because they're a test developer. And then in conjunction with company, I think it's called Prometric, a test administrator. So it was really on us. And I mean us, I mean everybody to promote it. But that by itself is a little flawed too, because it's kind of like all these shops, all these techs can rally around it. Raw ASC, it's very important. Let's show that we care and are dedicated to become or recognized as competent technicians and competent at what we do. And then you got a group of shops over there are like, well, we don't care. We'll pay you the same or more. And we don't care if you get them or not. And then somebody comes in and I had my shop up. I had my car over at shop A and they're supposed to be all certified down there. Oh, well, shop B sitting there going like, no, the ASCs don't mean anything. It's, it's a joke. We don't have anybody here that's ASC certified. And I wouldn't hire any of those guys up at shop A. Pfft, my guys are way better. And just run it into the ground. Well, what other entity can you do that with? Right. You're going to go to the doctor and say, I wouldn't hire a Mayo doctor ever. The AMA credentials or the board licenses, they don't mean anything. I got people here. They're way better than that. That would never happen. And you have like Canada, which you have to be a certain certification level to be technically a technician, which I don't think the government should get involved in it or mandate a licensing to work on cars. I don't think it's I want to say I don't think it's like a, a big deal, but at the same time, if a shop forgets to tighten a wheel and that wheel comes off, launches you over the highway, that's a big deal. But I think mandating or forcing a license isn't going to stop those simple or silly mistakes from happening because every text left a wheel loose on a car. I don't know. I just, I feel like there's no integrity in the trade anymore. It doesn't matter if you're ASC certified. It doesn't matter if you do quality work because at the end of the day it's about quantity over quality that's how the, the techs make money that's how the shops make money that's how the dealerships make money if you're not performing then you're essentially a useless employee for 98 years the napa name has meant quality parts and service it also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business no doubt the technician shortage is impacting everyone but you're not facing this battle alone Napa has the solution by making Napa Autotech training available near you. Napa Autotech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor's skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind... Napa Autotech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa Autotech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa Autotech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa Autotech offers, contact NapaAutotech.com.
you mentioned a technician shortage, but I think the real shortage is a lack of really good places to work so that good technicians can find a home and a career and work there till retirement and not regret it. That it's kind of what you would think any career would be. A professional career would be provides you a means of making a living and life after work, stuff like that. Again, as you hang out in certain groups, you start to think there's so many good shops, so many good technicians. And I suppose I should preface that like quote unquote good, whatever that means. But I think there's a terrific deficit. We, there aren't that many good shops and tech level isn't as high as we would like. And then not to drive this conversation one way or the other, but you read a lot about the shop owner manager groups. There's a lot of them trying so hard to get their techs to go to training and they they won't go or they can't get them to go. And it's like, they're kind of held over it a little bit too because years and years ago, they'd probably, they could can them and within a week or two have a replacement tech. But right now that is not the case. I feel like you still have to be leery on that because yes, maybe the shop owners may want the techs to go to training, but at the same time, are the techs being paid to go? Is the training being paid for? You have to incentivize them too. I love going to training. I love learning. Like Snap-on has a weekly YouTube episode every week on YouTube. Different stuff, how to diagnose this, how to use this tool, whatever. And I watch it. I went to ASTE last year, but my employer paid for the trip paid me for the days that I was gone. And I don't see why techs would have a problem going to training because it's almost like a paid vacation, at least for me anyways. I enjoy learning, but you have those managers that say, I can't get my techs to go to training and I can't help but wonder if it's because they're not paying their techs to go. So I don't disagree with that one bit. The examples I was rattling off, the ones I was reading were they're going to send a tech or two to some uh, training conferences and they're going to pay for them to go, pay for them to be there and all that. And, but I know exactly what you're saying. There's a lot of them that I want you to go to training. I'll pay for the class, but you're still going there after work. And if that's the case, you probably get out of work at five. Class probably starts at six, probably runs till nine or 10. And it might be one or two nights. And then you got to be back to work right away. Who knows how long the drive is to and from the class. And yeah. You're just wiped and you didn't get paid to go anyways. Let's assume the shop pays for like a training conference a year or every other year. You tell me, Colin, which one do you want to go to? Oh, I'd really like to go to Vision. Okay. I'm going to send you to Vision and pay you to be there. It's really nothing out of your pocket to go. And, but then also, what if they get you a subscription to like Scanner Danner or online training through Napa? Napa Auto Tech Training or CTI or WTI, something something like that. Is it unreasonable for them to is expect too strong of a word? But let's just use that tentatively. Hopefully you understand where I'm going with that. To spend some time at home learning with these? Or do you think that should all occur at work during, I mean, should it even happen during lunch or breaks? I can't speak for every tech, but for me, I am more than willing to go to STX, AST, Vision, Apex. Like, I don't care. But I think that has a lot to do with the tech. It has a lot to do with their wanting to perform or get better or advance. Not all techs are that way. A lot of them are just there for a job. And that's another issue, I think, with reputation as far as automotive goes is they don't care about quality. They don't care if they know what they're doing. They'll throw parts at a car. They want to make money fast. So 
I personally would love to go to Vision every year or every other year, whatever the case may be. But it, it just depends on the tech, in my opinion. But then again, too, if you have techs and you pay for a trip to Vision, they get paid to be there and they still decline. If it was my shop, I would probably just start looking for other techs because those guys aren't serious. I mean, yes, you have family issues and stuff, things that come up, but usually you plan these things well in advance. So, and I think that would also help the trade out a lot. Basically weeding out the terrible technicians that don't want to learn, don't care. I think that would change the reputation a lot, you know, first with the customer side of things, because you'd be more likely to get cars fixed right the first time. Quality of work would be there. You'd stop wasting your money investing in techs that don't care. So, but it's a catch 22 again. So what do you think about the online stuff where the reason I led it with that is I wanted to set like the shop has a precedent set that they will pay you to go to training. But now I have subscriptions for some online stuff, scanner, danner, nap, auto tech training, whatever. Is it reasonable for the shop? I, I don't know that I want to use the words like demand and expect, but maybe just urge or desire, maybe desire to have you spend time at home on these modules. Is that reasonable or should all of that occur at work? Again, it comes down to the tech, right? So I personally pay for a subscription to Scanner Danner. I have his book. I do all the classes that I can learn for free. If it's free education, I'll take it. But again, it comes down to the tech and their willingness and their drive to learn the trade. I don't see any problem with if the business wants to pay for, because like even I think All Data Pays has a, a training website that has all kinds of cool stuff on it. If the, the shop wants to pay for that or NAP Online, World Pack does online classes and wants me to do it on my free time, I'll do it. But I don't think the shop can make it a mandatory thing because it is my time, my personal time. So they can't tell me when I need to have a class done or how many modules I need to learn in a week. I don't think that is on the table. But if they want to pay for the classes, I am more than willing to take them. They're sending to other classes, live training. It wouldn't even have to be always big events, but certainly would could include that. And then maybe there's local stuff by whoever's standard motor products or Napa's there and they pay you to go to that. And if you go to this class, you can show up a few hours late, sleep in that. It's a lot easier as a tech, an employee to digest like, Hey, I got your scanner danner subscription. Have at it that it's a lot easier to sit at home for a couple hours a week or something to blast through some Paul stuff or whatever other entity. If that's all they're doing, like, Hey, we pay for your training, but all they do is subscribe to that and whatever other online stuff. And then, well, I need you to be doing this at home. You need to take your career seriously. If it's just that, nothing else. Now it's rough. Now I have a rough time with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's without any other dedication from the business to help you keep updated or increase your skill set, whatever, with these other things that they, it's easier to pay to go do. And another idea too is to further that is maybe sometimes a times of the year, if there's a dip, it slows down. That if they have computer or two or laptops even, it's like, hey, rather than going home, stay on the clock. Why don't you go hit some of those online classes? I think I would be down for that. So I guess this is an out there question, but you know, you've kind of found this voice of being disgruntled and fed up. If you could construct a situation now, what would take you from being the guy like, I hate this and I quit. And if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm thinking about being an auto mechanic, it'd be hard for you to say, oh yeah, man, it's great. 
you'd be like, oh, I'd find something else to do. One of our biggest promoters. Well, it's not that I have an issue with the trade itself. I love fixing cars. I love diagnosing cars. It's just the job aspect of it or the employment aspect. And I think the biggest thing would have to be the pay structure needs to change. Along with that, I think technicians and shops need to be held more accountable for how they fix cars. I just think there's a big reputation issue as far as taking your car to a mechanic nowadays. And I also just hate the pay structure. It's really my two biggest gripes, to be honest. Just an opinion. I'm interested. In your mind, what would be the perfect pay structure? It'd probably have to be a salary thing for me because an hourly thing can be tough. As far as mindsets go, right? A lot of people, when they're paid hourly and they're asked to do something that's outside their wheelhouse or outside their job definition, are going to be not too persistent about doing it, right? If you're salaried and someone asks you to go help this kid learn how to, I don't know, diagnose this weird electrical issue after hours, it's hard for me. If for me, I would want a salary plus some sort of a bonus or a product, a production bonus, in my opinion. It, it, that's what I would look for. I just don't like hourly. I don't like hourly mindset. I don't like the mentality that a lot of hourly employees have. Not that I would struggle with that, but I think technicians need to be given a guaranteed paycheck because technicians need to pay for their own tools. They need to pay for a lot of their knowledge training. Shops do pay for some of them, obviously. And I think they need to be rewarded for busting their butt and really producing for the business. On that note too, I think putting technicians on a salary would wake up a lot of these shops and I think it would fix the reputation side of it too because shops would stop giving away free work. They would stop letting half-assed jobs leave the door. So I think it all comes down to pay structure. And that that was my biggest gripe. And that's probably what, if the pay structure changed to where techs got a guaranteed pay and the shops took more responsibility for quality of work and what they produce in the industry, that would probably bring me back around to getting people in the door. But at this point in time, the investment in tools with the unsurety of income and then just the basic reputation you have as a tech nowadays for most places. It's just, it's not worth it for anybody to join the field, in my opinion. Would you be okay working for a shop that essentially paid for all the tools? Whether it's the shop bought them and they are all shop tools and you're using shop tools or had maybe a like a tool reimbursement program so that it really takes a lot of the financial responsibility for tools and equipment off of you. I mean, I think a tool reimbursement would be a much better thing because we all know when you don't pay for your own stuff, you probably don't take care of it as well as when you actually pay for your own stuff. So you have to give the the tech ownership, right? So they need to... I wouldn't want to work at a shop where I had to use everybody else's tools. I can't stand it when I go to my buddy's shop and I have to use all his tools in his toolbox. Drives me up the wall. Yeah, I was thinking more like... Maybe the shop has a tool cabinet or two, you probably have a couple bays, two, three bays, and there's a toolbox there or it's built in or whatever. And then all the tools are in there. And if you need something, you let somebody know and they get it. Or you have your own toolbox and your own tools, but then you're like, hey, I buy all my stuff off this truck or that truck, or you don't have any that you're buying regularly, but you need or want this that you go to management and they're, okay, you're going to use it? Yeah. Okay, cool. And they take over the payments, but it's your tool. I mean, yeah, I'd love it if someone paid for my tools. I like having my own tools. So I don't know. It's a catch-22 because I don't mind buying tools. 
the amount of tools you need to work at, especially independent shops. I don't feel like dealerships, you need a lot of tools. I mean, I know at Toyota, you didn't need much. A 10, 12, 14 in a socket, a wrench and a screwdriver. Like you're pretty much set to work on a Toyota. But when you work at an independent shop, I think because I've spent the majority of my career at independent shops. So when I was at Toyota, I didn't buy very many tools. I didn't have a large investment. But then when I went back into the independent world, you have to, you have those shops that don't want to buy the best quality tools, or they don't want to supply you with a scan tool, or they don't want to buy this nice brake flush machine. They'd rather you use like the vac machine or something. So it really depends. Yeah. I don't really know how to answer that. I like buying my own tools, but it's also very expensive. And it just depends on where you are in the field. Independent, spend more money. The dealership, you spend less money. Like you, I, it's something I wrestle with because I sympathize with a shop. The techs are basically saying, let's just better yet say, they give you a an allowance or a stipend every month, every week. Basically, they're making your tool payment to whatever entities every week up to X amount of dollars a week. And you build up a decent arsenal of tools and then quit. I sympathize with that fear. I don't know how reasonable it is. I don't know how often that really happens because you're doing something that would really not only attract, but also help retain techs. And if they want out, there's probably other problems and you're trying to do this to cover it up. On the flip side, I sympathize with techs that if the shop buys all the tools, you're kind of anchored a little bit too. And it's harder to go out and get another job because they may not do that. So now you're maybe still buying tools yourself just so you can have something in case you quit or get fired. So I see both sides of it. And then, of course, like you said, I've had this discussion with our techs a few times is, okay, tossing a wrench isn't going to hurt anything, but we're buying all these cordless tools. If you bought that $700 impact, there's no way you would have threw it six feet into your toolbox. No way. But since the shop bought it, this thing is getting frisbeed. That that isn't going to fly. If you want this to continue, take care of it. I mean, are you kidding me? And luckily, it's not been an issue. But yeah, I guess it's really all of this, all the compensation packages, everything, benefits, medical, dental, eyeglass, all of the point should be is trying to maximize our employees' expendable income. And if that's adding a tool allowance, that's almost like a big pay raise. Or potentially, especially if you're just starting out, that's a big deal. If you already have most of what you're going to need, you're only going to spend some money here and there for maybe some cool looking tool or maybe something new. You're at a working on more Euro cars. So you, now you got to get like the five point Torx style star, if you will, sockets. Let me ask you this question. With you being as far along in your career as you are, right? How much money do you think you spend in a year on tools just for? Your occupational side, not personal. Lately? Yeah. I mean, I have a spending habit when it comes to diagnostic tools. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's pretty bad. I would say the last couple of years is much, much less. Okay. But that's really only the last maybe five years, maybe. So it's dropped significantly. I would say I probably spend $10,000 or less a year. A year? Okay. Well, I mean, that's a big jump. That's, I don't spend that but much. But before that would have been more because now the shop buys a lot more and I've taken the hit on some other things. It was my idea to get into a mobilizer and keys and EEPROM. So I've taken the hit on that, but like the key stuff is taken off. So the shop's kind of reimbursing me for some of that. But for years before that, 
I had the scan tools. The shop maybe had a Snap-on or a MasterTech or, boy, maybe a Vagcom. I had all the factory scan tools. So I had all the stuff to do programming and coding and all that. And I had, I mean, I bought that all out of pocket. And then maybe they would pay for the updates. And if they wouldn't, I'd pay for them and try to broker out a deal to get paid to do the programming or whatever. But also, generally what would happen is they would see the the change in work. Like, well, we I never bought anything to program because we never program anything. And then I have a scan tool that programs. And all of a sudden, more and more programming. So how many cars left needing to get programmed that didn't? And then, of course, really going to our competition, if you will, and offering to help them out and then getting work from other shops. So yeah, I'm sure it'll keep dropping. Like this year, I think I've only bought one scan tool so far. So, and I didn't spend a terrible amount on it. That's a big expense too on independent side is scan tools and trying to keep up with the dealer. Programming stuff is expensive. Now you can buy like the MS or the 919 or Altel Ultra that comes with the JBox. It gives you the capability to program a lot of that stuff that the techs have to know how to program. They have to understand a lot of these OEU uh, scan tool size, like the software side of it. Not a lot of independent shops know that or get trained. They don't really offer a lot of training on that. And that's kind of based on shop side too. The shop that I was at or am at is Volkswagen, Audi, BMW, Mini, and Porsche. And a lot of that stuff is, that software is acquirable quite easily. But then you'd have like a shop that say, only deal with Mercedes and trying to get his entry from Mercedes is near impossible. And it's 50 grand a year. It's hard to swallow that. But I mean, on an average for most techs at an independent shop or dealership, like say for a dealership, right? A tech doesn't really spend money on a scan tool. They don't need to because the dealership supplies them. Right. I, when I worked at Toyota, I still had like an Altel or something that was quicker because never fails. Every time you need to use TechStream, somebody on the other side of the shop has it. So I looked into trying to get on with Cat or Wagner. And one of the big draws with working for them is they give you a tool allowance, an, an, an annual tool allowance that you can spend however you like. You basically buy the tool, give them the receipt, and then they reimburse you up to I think it was 1300 bucks a year. So that in itself, like you're still buying the tool. You're still getting it when you want it. Doesn't matter if you need it or if you just want it just because it's pretty. You still kind of get compensated for it. I think that would take a lot of strain off of technicians if a dealership was willing to give you a set allowance a year to keep upping your arsenal and tooling. And that also make you incredibly Usually, I mean, typically we buy tools, right, to become more efficient, do jobs quicker, or shortcut how to do a job, which in turn makes more money for the business. So that was one big draw to trying to go work for Cat is they would give you 1300 bucks a year for tools. So, but you still got to keep them. If you ended up leaving, well, they're yours. You worked for them. So Cat seems like. It just seems like a lot of those more industrial type entities typically pay better anyways. Well, they pay hourly, but there's a lot of downsides to it too. I mean, those trucks are usually covered in mud. They're massive. You're climbing up and down ladders all day. You need a a crane to pick up everything. So 
Yeah, the, it's probably harder on the body. I was thinking about like our pay scheme at work. I think they understand that and they pay better. Like when apprentices come in, if we bring in somebody that's pretty green and through the development process. So everybody's paid a base hourly rate and it, the base hourly rate, there's no strategy in trying to make it just low. We're not paying everyone just above minimum wage as a base rate. This is your guarantee. And then you really rely on your bonuses to make an okay living. We're hoping the base rate, I think it's there. I mean, the feedback from the techs and as best I can tell with the cost of living indexes, stuff like that, that work in that range. So they're all paid this a base rate. And then the, the shop, like everything else, has a kind of a monthly nut. Like we have to profit so much money to pay all our bills, which includes your, your wages and your compensation and benefits. And then the lights and all that, right? But once everything's paid for, the the basic costs, if you will, I'm not talking about the shop decides to buy a new hoist. Well, that's coming out of this month's profit. And that's not how that works. That once we hit that profit, that number, that we break that, then everybody gets a certain percentage of profit after that. And the idea that the spirit of it was is, Colin, you're working for me and you turn out a lot of hours. But really, you bring in a lot of business because whatever, you're networked or you just have one of those personalities that you meet people. You just happen to always be running into people at restaurants or while shopping and they just so happen to have car problems and you just hand them their, your card and they show up. Well, you kind of deserve a bit of a piece of that. You know what I mean? Like anything and everything you can do to help the shop make an ethical profit, you're going to get a little bit of a piece of that. And over time time being the month, hopefully that bonus check is like a third paycheck. And so the idea is you're making a a decent living just basically hourly, but then the bonus takes you up to whatever. Like it's a really nice bump that we try to tell everyone not to count on it just yet, but it's getting to be where they can kind of count on something. But I'm trying to weigh that versus now as one of the line techs, we've got somebody really green and they're going to kind of shadow you. Are you taking a little bit of a hit because of that? And is that fair or not? And I I don't know. And maybe it's an individual thing. If it is a hit, I don't think it's a big hit, but it's a hit nonetheless. And I'm trying to work, how would you figure that out other than maybe track yearly wages? And then it's like, well, hey, this year he's coming up a little short. All right, we better, is it short because business is down or is it short because we've got newbie running around and we're bringing them up and we're playing the long game? Well, now the employees shouldn't be taking that hit. That's the shop investment. We got to make this right. Well, if that's on the shop side too, I mean, I would feel like, say the tech is getting, I don't know, 2% of net profit, right? Every month. If you ask them to train an apprentice or help teach or shadow someone learning, I think you need to give them a pay incentive to do that because not only is that taken away from production of the shop, production of his side, but you're also asking him to train that tech. So maybe pay him 3% of gross or net profit or four, whatever the case may be. But then again, that could steer up drama with other techs too. You never know. Yeah, the idea is that the shop is making the investment, not necessarily the employees. Or if they do, it's a small amount, right? Because this is an organism. Everybody's affected by everything good and bad. So does this small investment of yours... And I mean small, like minor. In the long game, when this kid 
he or she gets on the line and starts producing and now net profit goes up anyways, you're reaping the rewards of that. I don't know. I don't want to get overly philosophical about it either because I still feel the shop is the one that needs to take, it needs to be the entity making the investment, not the employees directly. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the shop's business. They're the ones that are taking the risk, but they're also the ones making the big profits. Typically the techs are there to perform a service and produce money. But yeah, if you're asking a tech to train someone that's new, you're asking him to do more stuff, sacrifice productivity. And I, yeah, I agree. I think it should be on the shop side to up that pay structure for that technician that is technically taking a loss and doing more work in order to help the business in the long run make more money as, as, as long as that person works out anyways. Right, exactly. And honestly, if management took somebody in like a tech and asked like, hey, what do you think would be fair? That means so much in it itself, especially if you've established over time that as an owner, as a manager, as an employer, you are really looking out for your people. You're really looking out for them. It's so much easier for them to take little hits, even like unwitting hits. You know what I mean? Like something like that. It's not where management's really looking to take advantage of a situation or just totally oblivious to their employees taking a hit. It's so much better when they're like open and honest and it's like, hey, boss, you've been taking care of me. Don't worry about it. If it's that bad, I'll come to you. It's kind of back to that communication, talking about our feelings stuff where, God, if people just open their mouths sometimes, it saves so much drama. But I mean, it's the nature of the beast, right? The This industry is 95% men. And a lot of us, we don't express our feelings unless we're pissed off. So that's just kind of how it goes. It's either... Everybody's pissed off until well, somebody rage quits. And then that's when the truth finally comes out. So, I mean, I got the passive aggressive stuff down pat. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm very direct and aggressive, but I don't usually talk until I'm pissed. So. <laughs> Do you miss anything yet? Have you been out a couple of weeks yet? Well, it's been a month since I quit that shop, but I've still been wrenching. I have a good buddy of mine who owns a, a German shop here that basically where I learned. So I was there helping him until trying to figure out what I want to do or where I'm going to be employed. But he just doesn't have the space for me and I'm not really, I'm not really there very often. So I took a job at the dealership that I worked at, a Dodge dealership temporarily. That is a, it was supposed to be a part-time gig because I was going to go be an instructor at a college. So, but now that's probably going to be a full-time thing again, just because I don't want to be an instructor at a college. Are you in sales now? No, I'm still wrenching. Oh. (laughs) It's hard for me to look at my toolbox and not use it, but. I don't want to be in the... So I still have to produce a paycheck. I still have to work. The dealership I've worked at before, I just got an opportunity and left. I liked working here, so I don't have an issue working there. But it's flat rate again. There's politics, stuff you just have to deal with. But I'm actively trying to get out of it. But it's really, it's proven to be really hard. I've never tried to get out of the automotive industry. Every time I leave a shop, I just go next door, tell them, I experience, I, I always have a job within an hour. Trying to get outside of the industry is kind of an eye opener. And it's kind of humbling at the same time because I had such a big ego as far as being able to find a job within less than a day. And I've applied for so many jobs outside of the automotive industry and it's like none of them want to hire me. So it's a slow process to get out of the industry, I guess, but I'm still in it. So can't say I miss it. Just still doing it. Yeah, I guess. That part I find somewhat odd only because I know so many that have. They just, they may be still fixing something. I'm telling you about my friend Tom ended up at a forklift dealership 
And, but I know others, they get picked up by these other companies that, you know, industrial repair, fixing whatever generators. And I don't mean these little generators that sit outside of your house when the power goes out. I'm talking the ones that power hospitals, the ones that are the size of a room. They're gigantic running on LP or natural gas and they get picked up right really quick because most techs they hire have some deductive reasoning, mechanical aptitude, and they're set up much different than auto repair where there's somebody that designed that generator and they know how it really works. So if you're out in the field and you're kind of getting beat up, there's somebody to call to be like, hey, try this. I think I know what's going on or grab me this. Can you send me this meter reading or a scope reading or something like that? Well, I'm not really trying to get into a different field that still requires wrenching. I'm trying to get into like insurance or a government job, which is very difficult where I live just because I live in a a really large, small city. It's kind of hard to explain, but so I'm trying to get into not wrenching on cars anymore. I'm trying to find a different trade without going to college because I don't really like school. So I'm good with my hands and I'm a fast learner, but I, so that could be it too, is me just being hard-headed or not wanting to go back to college or go to college at all to get a degree, to become someone in finance or something in insurance. And I really haven't even figured out exactly what I want to do. I've just, I've done some research on things that sound interesting and that's what I've tried to apply for entry-level side of it. But a lot of it has nothing to do or pertain to automotive. So I think that's why they're really hesitant to hire me, which is understandable, but still humbling. I guess I'm thinking Colin lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You can start sending your bids in to Podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, that's one way to do it. <laughs> oh, it's a journey. We'll see. I do love working on cars and it's weird thinking about not doing it. Something in me tells me it'll be a little less stressful, even if it's a pay cut. But yeah. And if you keep working on cars, it's going to be more at your leisure and right. That's the big reason why a lot of us get into this trade is cars was a passion, something that you thought was cool when you were a kid. And I grew up watching Fast and the Furious. I wanted to build race cars and street race. And Okay, but have you blown the welds on your intake because of that shot of NOS? No, I have not, actually. I buy Volkswagens and Audis and BMWs that have reliable body bottom ends, so I haven't blown any intakes. Oh, man, I hated that part. <laughs> it just drove me insane. Yeah, there was a lot of, even watching that, any of those movies nowadays, it's really just the first three where they actually cared about cars. But being a mechanic and doing this for a living, it's hard to watch it. Even like a Speed Channel. I don't know if you remember like Speed Channel where they had like trucks and gears, all the car shows in the mornings. I used to love watching those. Now I watch them. Even then I get kind of irritated. Either they're doing something the hard way or just doing it the way I wouldn't do it. I don't know. Most of those that have anything to do with car repair and maybe to a degree modification, if it gets into some of the technical stuff, like they run into issues, it drives me insane. But yeah, I can't think of any of them that I really take any joy in watching, even just for a laugh. God, that one with shop rehab. Yeah, I think Discovery with Richard Rollins, Gas Monkey Garage. So he lives, him and Aaron... Kaufman live just north of the Springs. I think Rawlings still lives in Texas. Aaron moved up here and Richard has a house up here. I like Aaron. I can't stand Richard. I don't like him as a person and I don't like watching him on TV. I There's so many times I wanted to shoot myself watching that show. Like 
You have got to be kidding me. And they must have struggled to get, I know they got two seasons out of it, but they had to struggle to find shops because I mean, at some point they're doing golf cart modifiers and motorcycle garages and stuff like that. And it's like, man, oh man. Well, if you research any of the shops too that he has helped, they're all closed. Yeah. So he signed like some sort of crazy contract with these shops too. I know he was signing on like as he became the owner essentially. And then you had the... Right. He owned like 51% stake or something like that. So it was just an investment for him on his side, which good for him. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I've watched a couple of those episodes and yeah, the way they built the shops out or managed customers or whatever the case may be, it's, it's hard to watch. So what do we do, man? How do we fix this profession? I think you just start with the pay, which... Sounds like at least where you're at, you're in Texas? No, God, no. Oh. Do I sound Texan? I know. I just thought you said you were in Texas or something. Sorry, Kirk, if you're listening to this. No, Minnesota. Usually the accent gives it away or they, people think I'm from Canada. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, well, you deal with a lot of rust up there too, don't you? Yeah, everything. Yeah. I mean, I can understand not being flat rate up there, but at least here in Colorado, I mean, everybody's flat rate. So I just think it needs to go away. I don't think it will, but I think it does. I mean, go away or at least remove the abuses of it. A lot of people, like I'm reading various places, social media and professional forums, whatnot. It's like they're a flat rate shop, but they say they got a 30 hour guarantee. So it's not really true, pure flat rate anymore. Yeah. But if you look into that 30 hour guarantee, but you have to be at the shop for 45. Right. And that gets back to that abusiveness. Exactly. Yeah. I know I agree with what you're saying. I it really comes down to shops themselves stepping up to become profitable and profitable enough to for everyone to make good livings and grow your businesses and get equipped to do what you profess to be able to do at a professional level. Just some ethics. And I know when we get into economics and ethics, those are words that really don't go together. But I think we can all agree on the spirit of being ethically profitable. And it's doing what we say we're going to do and try to do it as best we can. And that requires the right people to do it. Well, to get the right people, you're going to have to pay up, which means you have to have a profitable business. So it's just, it's rough for me to talk about and focus because I I think I get scatterbrained about it because to me, it's just, it's an organism. It's just with different systems in place that work together for a common goal. And uh, yeah, it just frustrates me to hear situations like yours. And I know you're not alone. You're just the most, one of the most vocal about it that have essentially been abused by the systems. And now we drove you right out. That, that doesn't speak very well. I guess we haven't drove you, driven you all the way out yet. We still got some hooks into you, but you're looking to bail, right? I'm trying to get out. It's just, you can only give so many shops opportunities before you just feel like it's a waste of your time. And I know there's a lot of good shops out there. It's all in the reach of, at least for me, I can't find any. So what's the point? Well, yeah, and a lot is kind of relative. I don't think it's the most. I don't think most shops are well run and certainly not like employee first. And I, I know that kind of maybe gets a little controversial, but I think you can put employees first and still be client focused. And they probably goes hand in hand. Yeah, I feel like if the technician feels appreciated, well compensated, he fixes the cars correctly with care, with quality, and with communication. If the tech feels like he is being taken care of by the business, he's going to do his best to take care of the business. In turn, that creates satisfaction on the customer end of it too. 
But the way shops are run now, it's the business has to make money before the tech makes money. If the business isn't making money, then the tech isn't making money. When the tech stops putting in effort and the customer's pissed off, it's just this weird cycle. Like even that shop that I quit, I've never not given a notice when I've quit except for this one. But say that they take care of their employees and they pay them the most out of anybody in the industry. And you can pay me a hundred bucks an hour on flat rate, but if you have no work or you don't know how to sell jobs or you hire really crummy writers because you're paying a lot of money to the techs, then it's still just, it tumbles at the end of the day. Like there's got to be a middle ground. I know techs have to come to terms too with their expectations of the job. But at the same time, I think, and I was telling Jeff the other day too, that the technician, I think, is the business at the end of the day. You can fire everybody in that shop. If the technician's there, he can fix the cars, write the estimates, call the customers, sell the jobs. But if you fire the techs and keep the riders, like what are you going to be able to call the customers? I mean, that's a terrific way to wrap it up, man. I, I don't think I could conjure nearly as good of a conclusion. That was great. Yeah. Well, I've had a lot of time to complain about it, I guess. So that's what I came up with. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's nice to vent and talk to other like-minded technicians in the industry. Make me feel like I'm the only one out there. Definitely keep me posted on where everything goes. Maybe we can have a follow-up when you're some big real estate mogul out in Colorado Springs. Oh, no, I can't do real estate. Not in this economy. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. Not with these interest rates. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you again, Colin, for being on. Thank you to Napa Auto Tech Training for sponsoring. And thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for making this all possible. If you guys have any ideas or would like to be on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find on social media. And you can email me at mattfonslopodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, everyone, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.